Hello London, we are ready for your vote. Hiya, I'm Stephen Perkins and this is Douzepoir, the Eurovision Obsessed podcast that is part of the Binge Watch Network. We are currently here every fortnight taking a wander down Eurovision memory lane and I'm glad you've decided to join us for this one. Now if you haven't deleted your Twitter account in exasperation yet, you can still follow us there or on X or whatever stupid name it's using now at bingewatch underscore pod where we do post updates every time we've got a new episode available to listen to and you can of course subscribe via your podcast platform. Now we've already taken a look back at the 1998 contest when the United Kingdom hosted in Birmingham and we have I think offered a fairly exhaustive take on the 2023 contest in Liverpool. I imagine we'll probably do an episode about every single contest eventually, assuming we're around long enough to do that, so I thought it made sense to go all the way back to the very beginning for this episode with a look at Eurovision 1956, the very first one. Now, some of you may unkindly be assuming that I was actually around to have witnessed it in person. I wasn't. Uh, In fact, there are probably not many people around who've seen the whole thing because there's no known video recording of the entire contest. But the audio has mostly been preserved, and there are a few very enterprising people on YouTube who have put together reconstructions that offer at least a taste of what the real thing might have looked like. So I would like to give a shout out to Yeish the Doodle 23 for making this episode possible in the first place. So the first thing we need to account for is that Eurovision didn't just magically manifest overnight, and if we're going to talk about the very first Eurovision, we need to put it into its proper historical context. So, with my apologies for getting a bit Lucy Worsley on you, here we go. The European Broadcasting Union, the organisation behind the contest, formed in 1950 with the objective of achieving greater creative cooperation across its member broadcasters and sharing programmes across the network. Over the first few years of the EBU, a number of big events were transmitted through the network and a programmes committee was set up to consider potential future projects. One suggestion was an international song contest put forward by Italian broadcaster RAI using the San Remo Music Festival, which had been running since 1951, as a template to base the contest on. The idea was officially approved in October 1955, and this paved the way for what was then called the European Grand Prix. Now, there are various reasons that have been given over the years for the creation of the song contest, that it was a way of promoting pan-European harmony in the wake of World War II, or that it was essentially an extreme way of testing the network's live broadcast and link-up capabilities. How true those ideas are is still a little bit up for debate, but one thing that does seem fairly universally agreed upon is that it was a way to get broadcasters across Europe to engage in more of a cooperative, collaborative atmosphere. And given where we've ended up with the contest, I'd say that objective was not met, but exceeded. Switzerland made the offer to host the first contest in Lugano, which the EBU accepted. And there were two main reasons why this was the logical choice. Switzerland was fairly central geographically, which made logistical sense for what was to be a very complex live pan-European broadcast. And it was, and still is, the nation where the EBU headquarters were located. And given that the contest was based on an Italian format, Lugano in particular made sense as the host city, since it's located in the canton of Ticino, Switzerland's only canton with Italian as its sole official language. Now, anyone who reads the website TV Tropes frequently will be aware of a trope called early installment weirdness, which is basically what happens when you go back to the beginning of a long-running show and discover that it was actually quite different at the start, because those behind it were still kind of working out exactly what kind of programme it was and how it should work. That's definitely true of Eurovision, because the 1956 contest stands out for a number of reasons. It had the fewest competing countries ever, with just seven nations taking part, but they avoided it being an incredibly short contest by allowing each country to submit two songs. That's not the only thing that was unusual about it. 
Other strange rules for the very first Eurovision included the stipulation that only solo singers were allowed, and that you were allowed to vote for your own country. The voting in particular was unlike any other Eurovision, in that it was carried out entirely secretly, and only the winner was announced, and to this day, nobody knows for sure where the other songs came in the ranking, or even how many points the actual winning song got. One thing that struck me when I was watching, well, mostly listening to it, was the song length. In the inaugural Eurovision, there was no official limit on the length of some of the songs, although it's believed that entrants were encouraged to submit songs between three and three and a half minutes in length. Certainly one of the notable things about some of the songs in this contest is that they do feel like they haven't had to be rushed to fit a time limit, which is something you occasionally get in the modern version of the contest. So, which countries were in attendance at the very first Eurovision? The seven countries who took part were Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and Switzerland. It's believed that both Austria and Denmark were keen to be involved as well, but hadn't actually got around to confirming their participation by the time the deadline rolled around. You'll notice the United Kingdom is not on the list either. We didn't actually make our debut until 1957, which makes this edition of the contest, along with 1958, which was the only, only other time we set out, one of the only two competitions in Eurovision history with no songs performed in English. In a move that feels particularly United Kingdom-esque, in 1956 we decided not to take part in the very first Eurovision, and instead we decided to hold our very own song contest and not invite any other countries to take part. We held the Festival of Popular British Songs later in the year, although in 1957 this event became our way of choosing our Eurovision entry. So seven countries took part and other EBU members were able to passively participate by broadcasting the contest, either live or recorded down the line to play out later. The BBC, interestingly, decided to split the difference by carrying a live broadcast but only of the second half of the event, missing out the first set of songs entirely. So it's lucky for them that the winner came in the second half, really. Hosting duties for the very first Eurovision fell to Swiss presenter Lohengrin Filippello, who remains to this day the only man ever to have hosted Eurovision all by himself. And as for the entrants, most countries opted to send two singers along to the contest, one for each entry, although Luxembourg and Switzerland decided to have the same singer perform both songs, Michel Arnaud and Lise Assia, respectively. It's fascinating to listen to the songs now, particularly considering that other than San Remo itself, there was no real precedent for the first contest, so I imagine all the countries were just kind of making their best guess of what they thought might win some votes. One thing that jumped out at me immediately listening to the songs is that Germany's entries really stand out, purely by being quite different from what everyone else sent. Whether that's in a good way or a bad way is very much up to you. Their first entry, Im Wartesaal zum Großen Gluck by Walter Andreas Schultz, is definitely the stronger of the two. It opens a little bit like When You're Good to Mama from Chicago, and then it goes in more of a musical direction. While their second song, So Geht das Jede Nacht by Freddie Quinn, feels like a fairly transparent rip-off of Rock Around the Clock, with arguably the most lackluster vocals of the night. But, like I said, at least they both stand out in a room full of chansons and ballads. I'm not going to go through every single entry because, well, for one reason, I doubt anyone really wants me to sit here and play music critic, and also I'm going to be setting myself up for failure by the time I get around to the 2000s and I've got contests that have 42 songs in them. So I'm just going to pick a few of the other standouts. The song that probably would have got top marks for me on the night was Luxembourg's first entry, Ne Crois Pas by Michel Arnaud, which is probably the closest thing to a bop in the whole night. It's got a real sense of character and sass to it, and ticks along at a heck of a pace. Italy were also very clever with their first song, Apre le Finestri by Franca Raimondi, which tricks you by starting out like it's going to be another ballad, and then suddenly switches up into another jolly up-tempo number. Uh, I'm going to apologise here as well to any Dutch listeners. Uh, you may have noticed I like to try and say the songs as close to how they would sound in the official language as I can. I don't speak any Dutch at all, um, so I'm probably going to get this entirely wrong, but Vorgoed Vorbi 
by future winner Corey Brocken of the Netherlands was another standout song of the night. It was admittedly a ballad, but it was sung so powerfully and with such conviction that I really liked it. The winner on the night, though, was Lise Asia of Switzerland with Refrain, her second song of the night. And while it wasn't my absolute favourite, I can definitely see why it won. It's got a really sweeping, romantic big band feel to it, and it sounds like the sort of song that would play over the opening credits of a classic Hollywood romance. And on top of that, Lise Asia's voice is truly beautiful. Admittedly, my Italian is fairly limited, so I'm not able to tell you much about what happens in the contest after the final entry is performed, other than there appears to be at least one interval act, and it sounds a fair bit like birdsong. As for the voting process, as I mentioned, it was carried out in secret, with each country having two jurors, and the voters gave each song a score between 1 and 10 points, including the songs from their own country. One point of interest is that, for some reason, the jurors from Luxembourg weren't able to attend the contest, so the EBU allowed two Swiss nationals to stand in for them. An uncharitable person might suggest this was what allowed Switzerland to snatch the victory in the contest, but without knowing what scores anyone got, I'm not going to be so mean. The evening ends with Lise Asia getting to return to the stage to deliver a reprise of Refrain, and getting a little bit emotional with her victory at the beginning of the song, and having to request that the orchestra starts again, saying, On recommence, oui? Ultimately, the original Eurovision does feel quite strange compared to the modern contest, but it's easy to see why the format took off. There is something very wholesome and collaborative about it, and everyone involved does seem to be really enjoying themselves, and there are some genuinely memorable songs. But it's also fairly understandable that those in charge felt that a few modifications were needed before they came back for a second go in 1957. That's it from me for this week. I will be back in a fortnight when I'll be exploring the changing rules of the Eurovision Song Contest across history, and something tells me that is going to be a long and complicated process. So wish me luck, and until next time, good night Europe, and good morning Australia. Everybody.